A lot of information in your bulletin. We are so delighted to have you here this morning. I trust you'll read it carefully. Any way you can help out in any of the contexts of our ministries, we would appreciate that. VBS is coming up the end of June. One of the best outreaches we have through the summer. It's a great opportunity. You've got to come once, even if you're not involved at all, on one of the evening events just to see two or three or four hundred children in this audience praising God and singing. You have to see it to believe it. And you'll appreciate it, and you'll want to come back once you do. If you can help us out, please do that. Last Sunday morning in your bulletin and after the service, we had a lot of people fill this out. If you haven't received information from them yet, you put in your email, but you've not gotten confirmation, you can't log in, please contact Jean here at our office, and she'll make sure you get signed up. If you haven't done this yet, over 2,000 videos in every issue and circumstance and situation you can possibly imagine, please take advantage of that. It's available to all of us as a church, and uh, it's out there. Drop it off, and someone will help you get connected with that. Men's conference coming up in June. Ladies' missions conference here in the middle of May. Just a lot of great things taking place, so please read them carefully and enjoy them. We Christians talk about faith. God's Word says we walk by faith. We don't always have to see the outcome. We continue to walk and we believe. We've been told to keep the faith. Others have said faith is the only thing that got me through the crisis. My faith kept me going when nothing else did. The issue is always, of course, what you have faith in. And the depth of your faith will be dependent upon the level of what it is that you're trusting in. This morning I want to talk about what it looks like when it's lived out. When it fleshes itself out and we live out our faith, what does it look like? We're in a new series this morning. Started last Sunday morning in 1 Thessalonians. And if you have your Bibles or iPad or iPhone, whatever you have, I'd love for you to take it out. We're going to walk through again this first book, this first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. As Paul, Timothy, and Silas, right up front you notice is a little bit different then how he normally starts out, identifying three people that is involved in the ministry that is involved in, shares with us some incredible things about this church. And how I'd like to end this morning is looking at it and looking at us as individuals and us as a church to see how we measure up in living out our faith, our faith on a regular basis. So take out your sermon notes. They're in your bulletin. Blue insert, I think. Take them out. Get your Bibles out and be in First Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before God and our Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power and with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. We know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it. For they themselves reported what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. 
Last Sunday morning, I pointed out a number of things, a lot of them in your sermon notes this morning. But a couple of them, if we really understand, will change the way we view what we do on Sunday morning. One of the words that Paul uses here when he defines the church is a definition that means a gathering of citizens called out by a herald from their homes into some public place. A lot of us see church as a building, and it is. We call this the church, but it's a building. Others understand the church is a universal family of God. Those who've invited their lives to Christ, it doesn't matter what denomination or church they belong to, as long as they've invited Christ into their life, they're a part of the universal church of Jesus. In this context here, Paul uses a word that defines it in just a little bit of a different way. Not necessarily a house church that many of them are used to in our old concepts of what it's like in the New Testament as the church gathered together, but more an Old Testament concept where people are called out from all walks of life and all backgrounds into one common place to give praise and adoration to God, to hear from Him and to allow Him to hear from us as to how much we love being in His presence. One of the things we do on Sunday morning is that. We're a gathering of people called out of our homes and workplaces, called to come together to serve, to meet with, and hear from God. God is a convener of the gathering. The invitation is open to all who come, as we sang a moment ago. One of the reasons that we do what we do on Sunday morning is to understand that concept. And when we fully embrace it, then what we do on Sunday morning becomes a priority and not just something that Christians do on Sunday. Next thing that Paul noticeably points out is the centrality of the Trinity and his understanding of what the church is all about. God the Father, the Lordship of Christ, and the power of the Spirit. For many Americans, the view of the church has shifted from God-centered to need-centered, and many times to me-centered. When viewed from that perspective, the church becomes just another human organization created by human beings to meet human needs. Over against that view, Sands the opening verse of Paul's letter with a resounding emphasis on God the Father, the Lordship of Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. He reminds us that the church, whether in Thessalonica or Butler, Pennsylvania, is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The church does not even exist, certainly has no life apart from God and his saving work in Christ. That means that the church is not just another social organization. It is the people of God called together by him for worship and glory and commissioned to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of salvation to the world around us. It is God who calls us to follow, worship, and serve him. God does not exist for the sake of the church. Rather, the church exists for the praise and glory of God. When I fully understand and grasp that point, it fundamentally changes the way we think about church. We think of the worship service less in terms of what it does for us and more as an opportunity to give glory and praise to God. We'll consider the ministries of the church less as a means of meeting my needs and more an opportunity to serve Jesus and serve as a disciple of Christ and serve others in the family of God. When I fully understand that, then I'll view this Sunday morning gathering less as an intrusion on my weekend and more as an opportunity to declare my allegiance to the living God above all gods. And that way, both understanding and adopting a church-centered rather than a man-centered view of the church, then I'll really begin to live out what Paul says when he talks about the church that is truly in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The thing you can't help but to notice about Paul is his gratitude. 
He said, every time I think of you, he said the same thing to the Philippian church. Every time I think of you, it brings a smile on my face. I'm so grateful for who you are. I'm so grateful for what God has done in your life. Paul paid a high price to be in ministry. He was in jail. He was beaten up. He was left for dead. He was stoned. He was abandoned. He lost a lot of sleepless nights over his ministry for the church. But he doesn't emphasize that. He talks about it in Corinthians. But in every other church, he says, I'm just so grateful for what I've seen God do. And I'm so grateful for where you are. He begins this book and ends it with gratitude. Verse 3, I am so grateful for your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in Christ. Work produced by faith. Many see faith as an intellectual experience or exercise. Paul sees it as a vocation, a lifestyle, a course of conduct that springs from my faith. I mentioned last week, and again, another concept that once you fully understand it can change the way you look at life. It's from a book by Elton Trueblood that talked about your other vocation. His primary thesis was your primary vocation in life as a follower of Jesus Christ. How I make your living or how I make a living is my other vocation. Many of us define ourselves by what we do for a living. I'm a nurse or a businessman, a lawyer, a doctor, a mechanic, a farmer, or a pastor. The premise here is to see yourself and find your value and identity in the fact that you are a son or a daughter of the living God. When I come to faith in Christ, I am a son. You are a daughter of the living God. You earn a lit income by what you do. You earn an income as a nurse or a doctor or a lawyer or a farmer, a mechanic or a business person. You are in your value a son or a daughter of the living God. And when you understand that and fully embrace that, it will definitely impact how you look at life. Faith is vocation, keeps a relationship with God and with other people in high priority. I simply won't sacrifice either for the sake of a better job, more money, or personal prestige. Sometimes we've got to work at our faith. Sometimes we've got to work at having faith in the midst of difficult circumstance. It always, again, depends on what you have faith in. In Paul's case, it is in the living God and who he is. He's also thankful for their labor prompted by love. Not only does it take work to have faith at times, so does love. Paul uses the word meaning toil and hard labor. He sees love as way more than a feeling or an emotion. He sees it as an activity or an action. A lot that Paul talks about here isn't always related to love, emotions, or feelings. It is a choice to love, even when I don't feel it, even when I get nothing in return. Labor of love infers that I work at it. Some people are easy to love. Others are hard to love. But it means I love enough that I'm willing to work and do what's necessary to demonstrate God's love because of the love I have from Him. Sometimes love means you confront sin. And that takes work. Sometimes the labor of love means I walk into somebody's life who I have a relationship with and said, I love you enough to say you're going down a path that's going to destroy you. Now, for some of us, that may come easy. For others of us, it is a labor to do that. To say, I love you enough to say to you, you're going down a path that is going to destroy your life. Not only your testimony and your reputation, but it will destroy your life. I love you enough. I work hard at that to show you that I love you so that you'll receive it. 
Genuine love, God's love, doesn't always come easy. It doesn't just happen. It takes work, but it's always worth doing. And at other times, each kiss can be incredibly rewarding. To show and demonstrate love. A couple of times throughout a year or so, and the last number of years, you'll see a name in a bulletin that says Craig Adams. It says Craig is taking a trip to help out people who have gone through deep circumstances or difficult times. Maybe after Katrina, could be after Hurricane Sandy, could be the floods in the Midwest or in Georgia. But Craig has taken a number of people, and you see some pictures on the screen, just to show and demonstrate the love of God. There are hundreds of ways to do it, hundreds of ways to show and demonstrate the love of Jesus. Craig and a few people from our church and others like it have just said, this is how I want to show. And it's a labor of love. It's pretty intense, it's hard, it's difficult work, but it's a labor of love. Just to show people how much we care and that we understand their circumstance and we just want to show you the love of Jesus. There's a picture of a lady. It was one of the homeowners. Gone through some really difficult times. Lost everything. Very, very despondent. Her granddaughter had prayed for her. When they started her house, she was sad, angry, and confused. The picture that I think you saw on the screen here this morning is her smiling. As she understood the love of Jesus, she demonstrated it by receiving Christ as her Savior. She checked herself into rehab, and she's continually seeing her life changed and transformed because somebody just showed her love. One of the gals in our church, whose name is Teresa, she wanted to demonstrate the love of God as well. For her, it took a lot of work. It took some labor. Started a ministry like this and has done a number of ways just to demonstrate the love of God. Over the last number of weeks, you may have seen in a bulletin a just simple note said, if you have a prom dress that you would like to donate, we want to make them available to people who need them. What I couldn't get over is this view here. Our sanctuary, our gymnasium was full of them. Way over a hundred. During that last Saturday, a number of people came through and gals who were going to the prom, others who were just involved in a mother-daughter event, some people who were involved in a special needs event in our community just came by and helped themselves and were loved and shown the love of Christ. took a lot of work and a lot of effort for her to put it together, but it was worth it. Dozens of people came and took advantage of the opportunity that was presented. Didn't do it for recognition. Didn't do it somebody was, so somebody would notice her. I just happened to notice this labor of love and a demonstration of Jesus. On Sunday morning after the second service, a family came who couldn't be here on that Saturday and walked up to find out where they were, and she was said, I'm just so unbelievably grateful. Dozens of different ways that we can demonstrate the love of God. Not done for recognition, just to show that I understand how important it is to live out my faith and let others see the love of God in their lives. Paul also points to their endurance inspired by hope. The ability to endure, to keep going despite the obstacles, to stay faithful to the end, knowing it's worth it. The opposite of hope is despair. When you watch the news, it's easy to give in to despair. It's filled with tragedy and difficulty and circumstances beyond someone's control at times. And every once in a while, I've got to remind myself that my hope is not dependent on what's going on around me. My hope, thank God, isn't in the government or my job. It is in Christ. 
It is not based on ideas, theory, doctrine, or theology. My hope is in a person, Jesus, the Son of God, who rescued me, set me free, loves me, cares for me, and promised me that one day when this life is over, I'll spend all eternity with him. So that that hope keeps me going no matter what. It's not a wish. It's not a dream. It's not an empty promise. It is a confident assurance that God will keep his promises. And if I stay faithful to the end and I die in this life, I'll see him face to face beyond the shadow of a doubt. I'll go to be with him for all eternity. I'm not thrilled about dying. I'm not thrilled about the process of dying and what that looks like. But I am absolutely confident that when this life is over, the moment I leave this world, I'll see Jesus face to face. And no matter what goes on in this world, no matter how it seems to fall apart all around me, I am confident in my hope in Jesus. That's why Paul could say what he does at the end of chapter 4. Brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep in Christ. We're in death. So they grieve like the rest of mankind who seem to have no hope. I want you to understand that we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own words. We tell you that we who are still alive and are left for the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and a voice of the archangel with a trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, all who we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with the Lord in the clouds and meet him forever. And so we will forever be with the Lord. Therefore, in light of all of that, encourage one another with those words. When I die or Christ returns, I will see him and I will see my family and friends again, the ones who know Christ as Savior. And that hope keeps me going no matter what. And Paul said, I am so grateful that you understand faith needs to be lived out, that you really do want to demonstrate love. And I'm so unbelievably grateful that your hope is not in this world or what it brings, but that your hope is in Christ and what he offers. He defines and describes this church in those last remaining verses as a church who really does understand and a people who really do understand how valuable they are to God. In a few moments this morning, we're going to hold these reminders of how valuable we are to God. Today of all days, we celebrate communion. We hold in our hands a piece of bread that symbolizes his body and a cup that symbolizes his shed blood. A number of things may run through your mind when you hold those two elements in your hands, but one of the things that I hope you really fully understand and embrace is how loved you are by God. That he so loved you that he gave his one and only son so that you and I could have life and have it forever. This church understood that. They understood their value to God. They understood why they existed. They understand how valuable they are as a person. They were a community empowered by the Spirit of God. It was evident in their lives. It was evident in their preaching. It was evident in the demonstration of the Spirit of God being lived out and fleshed out. It was a church and a community transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They turned from idols to serve the living true God. They turned from things that didn't matter, that didn't help, that didn't encourage them, that didn't lift them up, that never gave what it promised. And they turned to the living God. They shared their faith. It was known everywhere. They practiced what they preached. Their faith wasn't just something they sang about on Sunday morning at that gathering. It was something they lived out every day of their lives. And everybody around knew it. When I began to look at those things, 
in that chapter, I realized that if we look at that church and look at our church, and not only look at our church, but look at ourselves, there are some honest questions <coughs> that we ought to be able to ask. These questions I'm asking myself, and some I'd love you to ask yourself. And then, honestly, what we would need to ask ourselves as a church. Am I a person, are we a community, that are really rooted in the love and grace of God? Do we understand how valuable we are? Do we understand that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? Do we really understand how precious and valuable we are to God? That my life has meaning and I have a purpose. And that he loves me so much that he gave his life so that I could have life. Do I understand the value of life? At a conference this week for the Pennsylvania State Police and the senior chaplain stood up. 65 years old that particular day of all things. And he said, I'm not only one who believes in life because I'm a pastor. I believe in life because a 14-year-old girl who wanted to have an abortion was told by her grandmother to value the preciousness of life. And instead of listening to those other voices that said she ought to have an abortion, she, by the time she was 15, listened to the voice of how valuable they are in God's sight, and she decided to have life, and it's me. Because of her lifestyle, a few years later, she died. But he said, I am so grateful that she listened to the good advice of my grandmother and recognized how valuable and precious life can be. Do you understand how valuable you are to God? Not just that God so loved the world, but God so loved you that he gave his life so that you and I could have a relationship with him. It doesn't get any more valuable than that. Does my life display the fact in your sermon notes this morning that I'm fully committed to Christ? Does my life display the fact that I'm fully committed to Christ? Have I counted the cost of following Jesus and decided that it's completely worth it? I'm not going back. I'm going to follow him for the rest of my life. I'm going to declare my allegiance to the living God. That old chorus that we used to sing, I've decided to follow him. No turning back, no turning back. Have I made that decision that I am fully committed to Jesus? And no matter what happens in this world, I'm not going back to what I used to. I am walking this Jesus road, and I'm going to walk it until I see him face to face. Am I fully committed to living my life in such a way that I'm obedient to the word of God, that others recognize that? Am I a community? Am I a person empowered by the spirit of God? Am I free and open to the gifts of God's Spirit? Do I understand what they are? Do I live the joy of God's Spirit? Do I demonstrate the fruits of His Spirit? Am I open to the leading of His Spirit? That's not just something I talk about and know that He exists in the New Testament, but I really do want to live the joy of God, that I want to live the joy of the Spirit of God, that I want to demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit. And I'm open to His leading, and I want to see His power manifested. Not something in days gone by, but right now, today, in this church and in this place. That I am open to what God, by His Spirit, wants to do. Does my life demonstrate in your notes this morning that in and outside this church, people see change? Not only what I do on Sunday morning or how I sing on Sunday morning or the fact that I raise my hand and sing a song, but I really am committed to living a life so that others notice Jesus really has radically transformed my life. Am I an individual that demonstrates that? Are we a church that demonstrates that? Are we a church known by the fact that we live what we preach? 
Some congregations pride themselves in the way they consistently proclaim the gospel but undercut their witness by failing to live it out. John Stott said, No church can spread the gospel with any degree of integrity, let alone credibility, unless it has visibly changed and has been changed by the gospel that it preaches. Do others recognize outside this building and wherever I find myself that I am a follower of the living God? And it has transformed my life so much so that they see it everywhere I go. Am I a person, are we a community characterized by faith, hope, and love? Is it noticeable? Is it evident? Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 13 that these are things that endure for the long haul. In the current political and cultural climate, with its concentration on winning battles and cultural wars, it may be that love requires sometimes the most attention to it. John Ortberg observed one time that the first casualty of the culture war is not truth, but love. Casting Crown sings a song that is absolutely powerful called Jesus, Friend of Sinners. And he talks about the church throughout that song as they sing it. One of the lines in it is that so sadly we as a church are more known by what we are against than what we are for. Sadly, the church of Jesus Christ has been known more by what is against than what is for. Now, there ought to be things that we ought to be against. And there ought to be things that we should not tolerate. But as a church, we ought to also be a church that demonstrates what we're for. And the change that Jesus can make. And not always pointing at people without understanding the demonstration or the necessity to demonstrate the love of God. It's so easy to stand on our principles and not do it with love. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, you know, it really doesn't matter how much you know, how eloquent you are, how powerful your platform may be, how much you're willing to give or donate or how much you're willing to sacrifice. If you don't do it with love, it's totally lost its meaning. Is it obvious that I'm a person, that we're a church that demonstrates our commitment to Jesus, that is open to the leading of God's Spirit, that demonstrates the fruit of God's Spirit, that do understand how valuable we are, that really does want to live out our faith, not just talk about it or sing about it, but really does want to live out our faith when we walk out this door. And we really do want to show the love of God everywhere we go so that others recognize there is another way and it's following Jesus. Not only imitated Paul, we've imitated Christ everywhere we go. And because of that, the throngs were attracted to him because they saw it was genuine. One of the best ways to end this message is with communion. Communion is an opportunity for you and I to reflect, to honestly look at where we are. It's a time to say thank you. That every time I hold that bread and hold that cup in my hands, I recognize how valuable I am to God. That He loved me so much that He demonstrated it not with words or activity, but with real life. As He gave His life so that I can have life. That I can know that my past is forgiven by the shedding of His blood. That without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So He gave His own 
so that we can have life and an opportunity to start all over again. And so he gave his life and shed his blood so that we can have life. So it really is an opportunity to say thank you so much. I understand how valuable I am to you because of what you gave for me. It's an opportunity to say I really want to live a life committed to you. I want my life and my lifestyle to reflect who you are and so that others see it and notice it. I've not done that well, so Lord, help me to do it this week, to do it in a way that people see and understand. Father, I do want to demonstrate the joy of the Spirit of God. I do want to demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit. Help me to do that. Or Lord, I'm thankful for what you've done this week or this past week or last year and the opportunities that I've been given to serve and to show and to demonstrate the love of God. It's just such a delight to be in partnership with you to be able to show and demonstrate that love to the world around me. All of those things and then some can be done as we share communion. It's an opportunity to reflect. It's an opportunity to speak. It's an opportunity to listen. And I hope that during this time together, you're able to do all of those in light of what Paul says to this group. Father, we do thank you for your love and grace. What an honor to be in your presence this morning. What an honor to be able to declare our allegiance to you, to stand and serve and say we are following the living God. What an awesome privilege to be able to share communion, to be reminded of your love and your grace poured out on the cross so that we can have life forever. And so, Lord, we thank you that during these moments this morning, we can spend some time with you and you can spend with us as we reflect, as we talk, as we listen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Communion is open to anybody who knows Christ as Savior. It's available to everyone, not just for a few. If you know Christ as Savior, you're free to take this morning. If you don't, you can do it where you sit. You can invite Christ into your life, commit your, confess your sins, and let Him come into your life. And invite Him in and turn your life over to Him. These gentlemen are going to serve... You obviously notice that bread and the cup is in one tray, so help the person beside you do that as we share it together. And then spend some time in these next few moments as we sing in reflection of what it is that God says to us this morning in His Word. Wait till everyone is served, and then I'll walk you through taking it together. You who grew up in a context where communion was a solemn experience that's awesome but it's also a celebration it is a celebration of the goodness and grace of god demonstrate in very visible ways in what he did for us on the cross and so this morning you hold in your hands two symbols of that his body and his blood shed given so that you and i could have life and have it forever and share it everywhere we go outside these doors take the bread and take the cup share them together those of you who are in the pews or in the back, you can have something in front of you to set the cup in. Spend some time in these quiet moments in reflection on His grace and His love given to you.
Father, we thank you for the great gift of life and for the opportunity we have to be reminded again of what you have done so that we could have it. I trust that you help us to process all that we've heard this morning, not just as material given and presented, but as a lifestyle that we want to emulate. And so allow us to take your word and give it feet and hands and hearts that show that we have been changed by Jesus. Thank you for this day. Look forward to all that you continue to teach us in our journey with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. First Sunday of every month, up until today, the last time, and then not again until fall, was family experience. At 10 or 11 minutes right after this service is over, you as a parent of someone in kindergarten or fourth grade will have the opportunity to go get your children, take them into our Kid Stuff Theater, which is outside these doors, and work your way around in there and sit down with them and have visibly demonstrated for you the virtue of the month, which, by the way, happens to be patience, which all of us need probably a little bit of work in. And then you get to take that and live it out, flesh it out with your children in your journey together. So if you're a parent of someone in our uh, children's ministries, go get them, take them in there, spend a few moments learning, and then share with them and live it out. Next Sunday morning is Mother's Day. That's a, a hint to all of you who need to go buy one of those big flower baskets somewhere, or whatever it is that you'll do. My wife keeps saying to us every once in a while, don't keep buying any more of those. We don't know what to do with them anymore. Whatever it is that you may need to do. But what I'd like to do next Sunday morning is take one piece of this chapter and all of the second chapter of Thessalonians and kind of lay it over what it's like to be a mom or a dad next Sunday morning. So uh, he just has shared with me some great things out of this chapter that I'd love to share with you next Sunday morning. So we'll see you then. God bless you. Have a great day. If I can pray for you in any way or we can, let us know. Have a great, great day.